Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is part two of my discussion of You Daughters of Freedom with its author, Dr. Claire Wright. Claire is a historian from La Trobe University. Her last book was the Stella Prize-winning Lost Rebels of Eureka, and we've been discussing her latest book, You Daughters of Freedom. This is part two of that discussion. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I speak with an Australian writer and explore their books, writing, and literary culture as I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. The Great Conversations podcast expands that discussion, getting behind the scenes of the book and exploring the issues that it addresses in our world. Thank you if you are already a supporter of 2SER, if you have subscribed, if you have rated us. I would love for people to share it around by subscribing and giving us a rating so that everyone can discover great Australian literature that we present on the show. Now, this is part two of my discussion with Claire Wright on the history and legacy of the campaign for women to gain the vote in Australia. It's a history chronicled in You Daughters of Freedom, and it explores the pioneering work done in Australia uh, for the vote uh, to be gained by white adult women and the influence that that work had around the world. It's a remarkable and inspiring story of a time when Australia was considered a cradle of democracy and an innovator for the rest of the world. I am joined in the studio by Dr. Claire Wright. Claire is an Associate Professor in History at La Trobe University. You've met her before on Final Draft. She won the 2014 Stella Prize for the Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. Claire, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here. And Claire's new book is You, Daughters of Freedom. It's a history and exploration of the pioneering work done in Australia to gain the vote for white adult women and the influence that work and the women who achieved it would have across the world. Now, our conversation, I think, is going to be dogged by contemporary resonances. As as a reader of You, Daughters of Freedom, will find their, their minds drifting to parallels with things they see in contemporary politics. But it strikes me there, you, you talk about an act of political calculation that completely backfired on a day where we've got a government that's backtracking and trying to tell us that somehow they stuffed up and they want a do-over. Thank goodness there was no do-over in South Australia 120-some years ago. Um, another another contemporary resonance, uh, our conversation is conspicuous because we are discussing the relationship and influence between Australia and England at the time of Federation as another set of royals do the rounds in, uh, in Oz. So questions of a republic were around in the lead-up to Federation, and they linger today, still not a republic. Does the campaign for suffrage influence or change the way Australia relates to the mother country, both in the lead-up to Federation and then after? So one of the things that I thought that I might find a lot more of in the primary sources and was quite disappointed that I didn't as a Republican myself uh, was more of a sense of those kind of early Republican stirrings around Federation. There, it was a fringe movement, if if anything, and um, you know I'm paid up member of ARM, and uh, and I, I I would like to see two things happen in my lifetime. I would like to see equal pay for equal work, a closing of the gender pay gap, and I would like to see Australia become a republic. And I think that one of those things might happen, and um, and I think that's the one that doesn't involve royals. There was a really interesting. So although there wasn't much of a Republican sentiment at the time, nobody really wanted to break away from England. What I did find was a really strong sense of self-confidence and and self-assurance about the young nation that Australia was not only different from Great Britain, but in many ways better. 
So there was this kind of colonial self-assertion that was running in tandem, interestingly, with a kind of female self-assertion. And so women were standing up and declaring their independence. And in certain ways, Australia was too. Not, not a severing of the tie, because indeed Australia felt itself very much part of the imperial family, but certainly a shift in the psychodynamics of that family. Um, a, a shift in the power relationships. And this becomes really apparent over the issue of women's suffrage. And that is because Australia gets there first. So that Australian women have these rights that British women have been fighting for since at least the 1860s and have gotten nowhere. And so for decades they've been trying to win equality. And here Australian women now have it and, and seemingly have it quite quickly and quite easily. There's no bloodshed, no one loses an eye, there's been, you know, lots of behind the scenes organising and skirmishing and certainly, you know, a hard fought battle, but in the end, it seems to happen quite easily. And yet Britain is no closer to achieving these rights. And Australian women became become very aware after they've won their own political independence that they need to help their, what they call, their less fortunate British sisters to win their rights and that Australia needs to become a leader and a force in this international movement, particularly in Britain, to emancipate their British sisters. And so you can see even in that language, their less fortunate British sisters, mm. that there's a kind of colonial inversion that's going on. Even in that language of sisterhood, if, if I remember correctly, the, the imagery from the banner we began our discussion with is the imagery of Britannia and Minerva, and Britannia is the mother. And now we're talking a, a shift in the symbolism to, to a sisterhood that is showing a, a change in the parity of oh, the, the, the power and, and towards parity. So this is what I ended up. So this is how I ended up making sense of that banner. Mm-hmm. Trust the women mother as I have done. It's an image of Mother Britannia, uh, painted in this classical or, um, it's an image of, so that, I'll start that again. So the banner depicts an image of Mother Britannia painted in classical allegorical form, looking diffidently off into the distance, holding her trident, facing away from daughter Minerva, who stands beside her and looks up at Mother Britannia and holds her hand out sort of beseechingly, but also gently. And this is what the words say. Trust the women, Mother, as I have done. So this is Daughter Australia. Minerva represents Australia. Daughter Australia reaching out to Mother England and saying, Take my hand. Follow me. I will lead you. Follow my example. Trust me. It's okay. And it's very much saying to the British government, Trust the women. And this is also a play I discovered on the motto, the slogan of the British Liberal Party. So the British Liberal Party, who by this stage are the governing party in Britain, are not to be confused with the Australian Liberal Party now. The British Liberal Party were not the Conservatives. They were the progressives 
of their era. So the 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 conservative and unionist party, the Tories, we know of them, they had always opposed women's suffrage. But the British Liberals, according to all of their other forms of political philosophy, should have supported women's suffrage. And indeed, their slogan was, trust the people. So that was, that, that slogan had been built in contradistinction to the Tories who believed that you couldn't trust the people because the people were, you know, a brutish mob. So the Liberals said, trust the people. So now this is Australia and essentially a nation saying to the British government, trust the women as I have done and you will be fine. And these are fighting words. These, this is, this is a really powerful political statement. And what I learned was that this banner wasn't just kind of stuck up on the wall of a clubhouse somewhere, you know, for a couple of, um, suffrage women to kind of look up at while they're having a cup of tea. This banner was carried in two of the monster suffragette demonstrations in England. One in 1908 and, and even more importantly, the one in 1911 that was called the Women's Coronation Procession that happened in June of 1911 in the lead up to the coronation of King George. And this was a huge public display of force. Hundreds of thousands of people came out to see over 40,000 women walk through the streets of London. It took five hours for the procession to pass through one point. And there were a thousand banners that were displayed. And this one was Australia's banner. And Australian women who were living in London at the time marched behind it. And Australian women who were visitors to London for the coronation marched behind it as well, including the wife of the Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher. That's Margaret Fisher. And so this was an incredible statement of diplomacy, effectively. These women were playing the role of stateswomen, of one nation speaking to another nation. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was courageous. It was audacious. Some at the time might have thought it was reckless. Some of the conservative politicians in Australia felt that it was, you couldn't teach, tell the mother country how to suck eggs. Mm. But that's exactly what Australia had done. In fact, they'd passed a Senate resolution saying that Australia sent a message to England to say that British, the British Parliament should do what the Australian Parliament had done because none of the prophecies of doom and gloom about women winning the vote had come to fruition. In fact, Australia had found that it had suited them very well and only good had come from it. And was something of a foment for change. I mean, in the years after Federation Australia was known as a paradise for women, that's a huge accolade to modern ears. It might jar with a few people, I, I think, as well. Um, what did that actually mean at the time? I, I think this was the biggest surprise package for me in, in my research, is realising just how prominent Australia was in the in a global sense. That this news that Australia had one... This is, these historic rights were, was not just a kind of interesting little fun fact about a kind of pissant nation in this floating around in the southern hemisphere somewhere. This was front page news around the world. 
when Australian women were finally enrolled to vote, newspapers all over America reported it. Australia was considered to be the leading... uh, Australia was considered to be the gold standard in democratic practice, the most progressive nation in the world, and that all of the hope and all of the optimism about the 20th century and its promise for the future could be seen in this guiding light of Australia. And it it was the global prominence was extraordinary to me. And I think the reason it was so extraordinary to me was because I had, I guess, imbibed the message that I had been taught uh, as an historian and, and, and in school that Australia proved itself on the world stage when it fought in World War One, that Australia's coming of age as a nation was on the battlefields of Gallipoli. Mm. And without any, um, without wanting to speak ill of the dead or any disrespect to, to, um, Anzacs or the legacy of the Anzacs, what I discovered that was, it was just historically inaccurate mm. to say that this was the point at which Australia proved itself on the global stage. Australia had already done that 10 years earlier with its progressive democratic reforms. And many of the um, legislative reforms that came after women had the vote. So Australia pioneered a whole range of, of welfare reforms. Australia had the first elected Labor government in the world. And, and Australia was famed internationally for these reforms. And so it wasn't just that Australia was the social laboratory of the world. I'd heard that. I kind of knew that. But it was understanding just how prominent Australia was and how many um, observers, journalists, social scientists, uh, sociologists, historians wrote about Australia at the time. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> this legacy as progressive democratic reformers is something that we enjoy for not even two decades. Um, and then we see a shift, we see the world at war, and uh, what we're taught, what we sort of learn through school of, of Gallipoli as the proving ground, uh, the emergence of a nation. Do you feel that w- one narrative has been sort of guided um, and the other has been neglected? And, and has that robbed us of something? Yes. Simple, simple answer. We have been robbed of that heritage. It's like it's like uh, the Anzac legend is the Great Wall of China that we can't get past and therefore can't see any other view but for it. So it just has kind of obliterated all other forms of history. So we come back to the point you made earlier, though, about everything seems inevitable when you've you've got the story that that came before it. But how can we understand this this shift in narrative and this this prominence of one narrative and the neglect of another? Well, I think that comes down to uh, how you write history and who writes history, and why you write history, and. You, you, the, the militaristic narrative 
is uh, also a highly masculine one. And once you start to create an idea of your national genesis around war, Mm. you um, almost, uh, I'm trying not to use the word inevitably, but you almost inevitably block out the role of women as political activists and organisers. You don't necessarily block out the role of women as helpmeets uh, and and the women on the home front who kept the home fires burning. But that's a, a particular form of femininity and, the, and, and role of womanhood that is goes hand in hand with the idea of for king and country. Is there any sense that the British narrative of suffrage may have informed this? Because very much uh, adult white women suffrage in... Uh, in England, emerged out of war. That's right. So the irony of the situation in England was that all of the campaigning, all of the the militant activity that that in in some ways we're much more familiar with than we are with our own Australian suffrage story. You know, the Pankhursts, the 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 woman who throws herself in front of the horse at Epsom and is killed, and the smashing of the windows and setting fire to letterboxes. That whole part of the story and the struggle that we're in some way familiar with really comes to a close at, in 1914 when Britain declares war and Emmeline Pankhurst declares that the suffrage war is over and, and, and calls a truce for the time of the war. And then by, the, by 1918, the British government then gives women the right to vote, not all women, it's a partial suffrage, it's only women of a certain age and with certain property qualifications, so it gives the, the partial vote to some women in 1914 as a reward for their war duties mm. and their war service. That's that's the official kind of line on it. And not because their demands were just, mm. not because their campaign w- w- was proven, but because they had effectively been good wives and mothers and war citizens. And... So yes, that does start to become, um, uh, you know, Australia both ties its colours to the imperial mast in World War One, in a way that does bring a halt to those early strivings for what I describe as a kind of colonial self-assertion in independence. The war, the war brings that up haltingly, but also one of the things that happens is that. Australian women who had been very active in the suffrage movement, <clears throat> Australian women who had been very active in the suffrage movement in Australia, like Vida Goldstein, who had been leaders of the Australian suffrage movement and who had gone to England and fought with the suffragettes, in World War One they became very strong anti-war campaigners in Australia. They were very prominent in the anti-conscription debates. And part of the rationale for women wanting and getting the vote in the first place was the idea that they would improve the world, that they would be the mothers of the world, and that they would, in a sense, save the world from the depravities and the um, the, the values and the behaviours of men, war included in it. And that if you had more women who were 
uh, doing what they call the national housekeeping, keeping things clean and tidy, teaching people to share and negotiate like women taught their children, then the world would be a happier and more peaceful place. And World War I really brought that whole idea to a very rapid close as well. Mm. It strikes me that gendered language may not have ultimately been particularly helpful. That gendered language is something that as an historian you just have to deal with without mm. judgment in a sense. You have to understand people as a product of their own times. Mm. But if you think I, I, if you think about, and sorry, I've got, I'm going way off script here, uh, my background in linguistics and neurolinguistics, something about the way you talk can actually shape your reality. So that's where I was, that's what that comment was directed, yeah. Women very much felt that their role in society as mothers is what empowered them mm. and to take on public roles. And that that's a kind of idea that is uncomfortable to the modern ear mm. because we now think of the idea of being a mother as limiting in mm. some kind of way. That if you th- that motherhood is kind of secondary to your role as a worker, as a productive citizen and as a as a as a public entity. Whereas at the turn of the century it was motherhood that women felt qualified them to take a part in public life. So it is very much one of those kinds of historical contexts that you have to understand and appreciate for what it meant at the time, not what happened to it mm. in the future. Yeah. So we return to the suffrage banner now on display in Parliament House. Its acquisition by the Australian government for the bicentennial ceremonies wasn't without controversy. Many feminists felt a rift between this this symbol of gaining the franchise and the fact that it was acquired as part of a celebration of invasion. So, given Australia's first uh, first peoples, they didn't gain the vote themselves for another 66 years, of course, after you've already described the loss of uh, the vote in South Australia... And they're still subject to regressive legislation in parts of the country. Do you see in in exposing this this story of Australia as a a cradle of innovation, of progressive thinking, that our past might point us towards the future? Uh, Well, as a progressive-leaning person, I'd like to think so. Hmm. But I also don't think that... um, I don't think that history is linear... And I don't think that we necessarily learn the lessons of the past. I just think that it's really important to tell the stories Mm. as they happened and to make our historical record more inclusive and more accurate. And in this case, to tell the story of our democracy in a more inclusive and accurate way. I think that that, uh, I hope that in a sense that is in some way, um, of benefit to an active uh, and robust participatory democracy now because I think that if uh, women in particular understand the role that they played in the past in shaping the democracy that we have today, then that may, may, fi- may make them feel more empowered to play a role today. And I think that it, perhaps even more importantly, if men understand how important and central women were to nation building 
in this country, then they might also value uh, and appreciate women as political actors more than they do. I'm going to push a little here because we've discussed how competing narratives um, played out and one, one overtook the other. So we've looked at that sort of uh, birth of a nation through militarism. Could a book like Your Daughters of Freedom help reassert uh, what was once our, our, our birth of nationhood kind of narrative? And could that narrative guide us in a different way? I think the problem with the birth of the nation narrative that starts on the beaches of Gallipoli is that we also know how that ends. It ends in, in, in death and destruction and grief and tragedy. And it's in a sense bizarre to have a birth that ends so quickly in death. I think if we have a birth of the nation narrative that starts with the founding of a nation where people came together to actively debate and discuss what kind of nation they wanted to have, what sort of future they saw for it, then we have more of a sense of a future that is open, uh, more possibly optimistic, definitely difficult. Democracy is, is not an easy concept. Uh, democracy is hard work. You have to negotiate constantly and you have to allow other voices to the table. And I think that it's time for Australia to, to step up to that challenge in the way that it has in the past and has very successfully done in the past, mm. particularly in, in terms of recognising our first Australians now as part of that negotiating process and listening and understanding what other subject positions have to say about being included in our nation. So I think a story about the start of a nation that is rooted in participatory democracy, not in imperialism and militarism and death, is a better starting point for having an open and more broad and more optimistic conversation about the nation that we can be. That was part two of the great conversation with Claire Wright discussing You Daughters of Freedom. You Daughters of Freedom is out now through text. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations, can I encourage you to subscribe or give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It means you'll have a new episode of Great Conversations, and that, that's a new book to discover every week. And it also helps others discover new Australian literature. Now, uh, if you want to keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We are at Final Draft 2SER. I'm Andrew Popel, and I, uh, I'll be back next week with more great conversations, more great books on the Great Conversations podcast. I'll see you then.